Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm your host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the centers, Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, a free press is a vital component of a free and healthy democracy, and across the Americas, this freedom is increasingly a risk. In recent years, attacks against media institutions and journalists have increased, with many facing threats in the form of verbal attacks, censorship, criminal investigations, and even physical violence. In many countries, the COVID-19 pandemic has compounded restrictions on the press, often under the pretense of fighting disinformation. Currently, 11 countries in the Americas rank in the lower half of the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index. And attacks on press freedoms raise questions about governments' commitments to protecting journalists and their role as watchdogs for democracy. When do governments help protect the work of a free and independent press, and when do they hinder it? Joining our roundtable to explore these questions and more is John Feely, a former U.S. ambassador to Panama and retired senior State Department official. Ambassador Feely now consults with private sector and not-for-profit clients on democracy and security issues in the Western Hemisphere. Ambassador Feely, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. And, and I wanted to say, uh, we'll, we'll start with a question with you, then we're going to introduce our panel, and we'll have them have their opportunity to ask you a few questions before we just dive into a roundtable discussion. So you've worked as a consultant with Univision, other media outlets, and you've expressed your concerns with misinformation, disinformation, fake news. We tend to use the terms interchangeably, and that may not be useful. Uh, but just generally speaking, the broad brush overview, what are your principal concerns with the health of the media environment in the Americas? I guess the principal concern is, are the pressures that are on traditional media. Uh, Right now, I identify five major pressures or uh, undue influences on traditional media. Those are either governments, oppositions, foreign governments in some cases, corporate interests, or I would say, finally, and sadly, not in every country, but in many countries, criminal interests. We're talking about cartels in Mexico or in Colombia. And so what you find is that the traditional family-owned, family-oriented, and vertically integrated media, so you've got like the Santos family in Colombia or the Juncos uh, family in, in, in Mexico, will own a media, they'll own radio stations, they'll own television stations sometimes, they'll all be linked. But what you find over time is that these pressures or these influences uh, find their way into the reporting. It's not dissimilar to what we see here in the United States with the accusations that are leveled against either MSNBC on the left or Fox News on the right. The issue in Latin America is what I don't see is there's, there's no Paraguayan PBS There's no Colombian pro publica. We have in the United States the benefit of some genuine public interest media that most, not all, but most observers would say really do play it down the middle, down the line, and separate what is uh, fact-based reporting from opinion with a pretty 
bright, clear line. In Latin America, it's pretty hard to find that. And I think that's probably the major concern, because ultimately what that means is that citizens throughout Latin America aren't necessarily getting unalloyed information. They're getting some type of propaganda emanating from one of those influences. A trend we've seen in the U.S. is that uh, less and less are people relying on traditional media sources for their news and information and more on things like social media or you know, tweets and Facebook posts from their friends. Are there similar trends happening in Latin America? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, if you take a look at what happened during the worst of the COVID pandemic, people in Brazil, which was devastated by COVID, were getting information from WhatsApp groups, uh, Facebook. Uh, it's the same thing as in the United States. Everything that you've seen in the United States uh, with regard to uh, sort of, say, January 6th and and the Patriot groups and the three percenters and the, the pro-Trump uh, insurrectionists who took over Capitol or who attempted to take over Capitol Hill, um, when you read about their diet or consumption of media and how they get the information on alternative platforms like Parler or things like that, it's the exact same thing magnified in Latin or that you see in Latin America. But it's magnified by the fact that there really is in many countries a complete lack of any alternative to traditional media uh, in terms of getting really good information that you can base local decision-making on. Uh, no home base for, for truth-based reporting. Uh, I want to bring in our roundtable. You know many of these folks from your, your work with them in previous iterations. So uh, please say hello to Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hi, John and John. Yes, yes, John and John. There you go. Uh, Brazil Institute Fellow Daniela Campelo. Hello. Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gadan. Greetings. Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman. Hi, John and John. And Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Bonjour, hello to all. You know, it won't always be so easy. Our guests won't always have the same name as, as your trusty moderator, so it may stretch your abilities to remember names. But uh, let's, uh, before we get into some general discussion, as we tend to do in these roundtables, I thought we'd go in a meet the press tradition. And in order of introduction, I want to give each of you an opportunity to either uh, provide some comments on what you've heard from Ambassador Feely, or maybe to ask him a question, whatever you decide to do. Cindy, let's start with you. Sure. John, I have a question, because one of the things that I think is the most troubling when you look at the media landscape in Latin America is the number of journalists in a country like Mexico who are being assassinated and um, and, uh, you know, the extreme restrictions and crackdowns and expropriations of media in places like Venezuela. Um, but I want to ask specifically about the the greater use of spyware now. There have been a couple of scandals about um, the use of this Pegasus spyware to, um, uh, you know, listen in and, and tap the cell phones of journalists in El Salvador and in Mexico. Um, to what extent are these advanced cyber tools um, yet a new layer of threat that independent media face in the region? It's a great observation, Cindy, and it is a very devastating and dangerous threat to freedom of the press and freedom of expression. Um, and it's not limited, I would say. It's not limited just to Latin America. We've had issues with uh, spying on journalists here in the United States in the past um, and the use of government agencies. Uh, the Pegasus one that you bring up is especially troubling. Uh, where I was ambassador in Panama, Ricardo Martinelli back in 2000 and uh, probably 12 or so acquired one of these Pegasus 
programs. It's actually just a set of servers and a program and was openly spying on about 150 um, political opposition, journalists, uh, judges, people who would oppose him in the Congress, things like that. And he, when I say openly, it's because he would he would sort of out himself on Twitter uh, with the information that he got from the Pegasus spyware. Now, NSO, the Israeli corporation that makes the Pegasus spyware, has come under tremendous, tremendous scrutiny, as it well should. And for any uh, any program that would purport to be used by anyone other than a government agency in a judicial setting with appropriate safeguards for information so that it would be only used, for example, the U.S. government does listen in on conversations to drug traffickers, to human traffickers. Uh, all of that is done with judicial warrant in special courts. Um, when you have something like Pegasus in the hands of a scofflaw like Ricardo Martinelli or in the hands of many Mexican institutions, uh, there were a number of uh, Mexican agencies during the Peña Nieto government who are accused, and it sounds like credibly accused, of spying on Mexican journalists with the same software. So it's a real threat. Um, the sanctity of a journalist's source absolutely has to be respected for freedom of expression. And so it's something that you're very correct to highlight and something we're very worried about in the hemisphere. Daniela. John, I, I, Brazil, as you mentioned, is a country, example of a country where the media system is highly, it's built on cross ownership. And this reinforces the ownership concentration in the hands of a small number of groups and individuals, both at the state and the local levels. I wonder if in Latin America, there's any example of a different different type of regulation of the media that could serve as a benchmark to Brazil if in the future we would like to reassess this? You know, Danny, that's a, that's a great observation. And you're right. Uh, Brazil is one of the countries where you have the highest concentration of ownership of media. Um, and they are very clearly linked to either the uh, official party or to an opposition party. Um, a great opportunity for uh, all press in the region is the digital online portal. Um, if uh, the one that I like to point to as really doing something that I think is exciting and and very useful in a democracy because it holds government accountable is a small outlet out of El Salvador called El Faro. El Faro has been around for a number of years, means the lighthouse, and they have been investigating the governments, whether it was the FMLN government previously, whether it is the current uh, worrisome authoritarian government of uh, Nayib Bukele. Um, the issue always comes down to how do you make this pay? How can they keep it, as you say in Spanish, rentable? How can you make money on it and keep themselves going? They tend, El Faro tends to work on a shoestring. Um, I think it's probably emblematic that if you, you know, we're in Washington here doing this uh, podcast and we all listen to NPR. NPR is in the midst of its spring campaign, which all of us kind of roll our eyes on. But the bottom line is people have to be willing to pay for this and people have to be willing to pay um, to get beyond the firewall, so, so to speak. Um, and so that's a real challenge. But I think that it's probably digital is, and the online portals that can be run on much less than a traditional paper newspaper um, and can use take advantage of streaming technologies and podcast technologies. That's going to be the way of the future. And the question is going to be if people can figure out business models to make it work. Benjamin Gadan, what's on your mind, Benjamin? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, I recognize, John, the 
problem you're identifying. I think this is particularly true outside the capital in many Latin American countries, you know, rural areas, you really just get maybe one media institution run by some local, you know, family of politicians and and media moguls. Um, That said, I'm concerned about promoting efforts to actually address this problem. I mean, it just strikes me as a classic slippery slope where, you know, under the guise of addressing, you know, the concentration of media ownership or bias, what you get is systematic attacks on one or two big media companies that are seen as opposed to the government. I mean, the example that I most recall is Christina Fernandez de Kirchner's campaign against Clarín, this so-called Clarín Miente, Clarín Lies, or or the original sort of fake news effort. Now there, you know, there were some genuine concerns about media concentration and bias, but also it was transparent, it seems, as just an attack on a media company seen as unfavorable to the government. So again, I just wonder how do you address what I think is a genuine problem without causing a arguably more serious problem? You raise a really good point, and I do remember that sort of Hatfield and McCoy sniping back and forth uh, back uh, with the, during the Clarín Miente campaign. Um, I think the only real, genuine, sustainable answer to that is to have real, genuine, sustainable, independent media. Um, and that's, again, a difficult... I don't profess to have, a, have the solution to it, but you've got to have a group of people who are dedicated to producing information that is based in fact and only in fact and is put into context. And when there is an opinion rendered, that it is very clearly expressed as an opinion of the journalist, of the outlet, and not of the opposition party behind it or the presidential party behind it or a corporate interest that's paying for it under the table, etc. So I think I come back to the point I made in my opening comments about public interest media Having a public interest media is an enormously valuable asset in a thriving democracy. We are beyond privileged in the United States to have a few of them. Now, do people appreciate it? You know, I mean, PBS uh, is not as watched as Fox News. I'm the first to admit it. But that said, among elites, when you begin to have real public interest media put things out there, things like frontline documentaries, uh, things like some of the BBC work that's put out, even though that is government run, they have always had this incredible bright shining line uh, in between the government propaganda and, uh, you know, or the government line and what um, what they will put out. It's really interesting. I draw your attention to a recent testimony by Ann Applebaum, who writes for The Atlantic, on how to fight the disinformation war. And she very clearly comes down on the side of the United States and the West need to ramp up their own propaganda campaigns against Russia and autocrats around the world. It's a compelling argument. It's something that can be done. But I would argue in the long run, it goes down that slippery slope you're worried about because it tends to look like you're just pushing out your side without putting it in context and recognizing that on any side of a policy debate, there are always going to be strong points and weak points. And the citizenry should be advised of both the strong and the weak points of any argument in order to make its own mind up about what the best decisions are for the issues that face it. Andrew Rudman. Thanks, John. Um, Let me talk more specifically about Mexico, which is um, now seen as the most dangerous country, not in a war zone for for journalists. As, As you well know, there are both um, now, uh, already eight deaths this year of journalists uh, in, in Mexico. It's only the middle of March. 
Um, and there are also a lot of verbal attacks on journalists being accused of being unpatriotic uh, when they report information, uh, you know, things as, as you know, like tax returns being published, et cetera. So I kind of wonder, and I think what, what you're talking about is, of course, right, that we need that independent media. How are we going to ensure, though, that people actually want to be journalists in places like like Mexico, given all the risks? Yeah, I mean, you know, you talk to this, what's the sort of standard, uh, you know, career day in kindergarten where the fellow comes in and he's the policeman or the fireman. And, you know, the teacher says, well, those are real dangerous jobs um, in Mexico. Uh, if you come in and you uh, talk to little kids about being a journalist, most kids would probably even at uh, a young age say, well, that's about the most dangerous thing I can think of doing, short of becoming a narco myself. Um, it's it's a horrible situation what's going on in Mexico, and it's even more deplorable that much of the pressure stems from Los Pinos, from the presidential palace, uh, and actually not Los Pinos, but the uh, the, the palace downtown. Um, I think that there is a need and a desire, a strong desire in Mexico for information that is not uh, coming from directly from AMLO. Uh, or that is not just uh, an incessant attack against him. Um, the way you ensure that people want to be journalists is by the example of journalists who stand up to those pressures. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that while he has been put under tremendous pressure, as has Carmen Aristegui uh, in Mexico, they are two of the most well-known and um, famous people in Mexico, instantly recognizable by most of the population. And I, if you look at the polling, they're, they're, they're universally, uh, well, not universally, but they are admired um, and uh, seen as doing the right thing compared to many of the targets that they attack. In the case of Aristegui, it was uh, President Peña Nieto. In the case of Carlos Flores de Mola, it's the corruption, uh, alleged corruption, uh, of um, Andres Manuel López Obrador. So I think it's the, I think I think you'll probably always, as long as you have some examples of courageous journalists that are able to hold governments or hold corporations uh, accountable, um, I think you'll always have people who will be interested in it. I'm, I'm glad you brought up both of you in this exchange, the uh, criticism of the press from the bully pulpit, right? When leaders, heads of state, of government, this has become almost an art form. And certainly uh, President Trump, former President Trump, was a, a global leader in vilifying the press. Not that that's new in politics, uh, whether it's AMLO, whether it's now Vladimir Putin in Russia and the clampdown we've seen on attempts by journalists in state-run media to be independent. It's a global phenomenon and the Americas are no exception. But you know, one exception in the Americas, Chris, uh, you're up. And uh, according to the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index, Canada ranks 14th worldwide, second highest in the Americas behind Costa Rica. Well, Canada does have a very open liberal environment uh, for media. And of course, many of our listeners will know that uh, Christian Freeland, former foreign minister, now deputy prime minister and minister of uh, finance, is a former journalist herself, having worked both for the New York Times, for The Economist, for the Financial Times. She's got a terrific career. And on issues like Ukraine, she's been quite forthright about, about press freedom and has arranged to make a big contribution to UNESCO's uh, Global Media Defense Fund uh, to try to help. But not everything is great in Canada. I, I, I hate to break the news. And one of the things that's been happening more and more is uh, activists who are using the gray zone of media versus 
independent documentarian or or activist writing for a, a website to kind of appropriate the media uh, sort of label, but what they're doing is much more activism. And I'm I'm thinking a little bit in 2021, just last year, there was a case where um, some activists who were tr- reporting on indigenous resistance to a gas pipeline were involved in an incident that involved some vandalism to the pipeline and it had gotten a bit violent. So I, I guess, John, my question for you is, um, what about the other side of it? Not just the freedom of the press, but those who would use the freedom of the press to do things that aren't what we consider press stuff, but political things and wear that hat, try to claim those those liberties, but at the same time, maybe direct actors, not just observers or reporters on what, what's happening. Does that happen outside Canada and in other places as well? Well, Chris, you put your finger on one of the real difficult issues. Um, and I have looked at this and I quite frankly admit that I'm struggling with it. I, I don't think I have a quote unquote solution. But, you know, the social media influencer of today, the citizen journalist of today is an enormously powerful figure. I mean, look, just last year here in the United States during our presidential campaign, TikTokers, uh, went about a campaign of using the social media platform TikTok to make it appear. Now, they weren't doing reporting, but to make it appear that a Trump rally was going to be completely sold out, oversubscribed, cast of thousands. Um, and in point of fact, uh, it was all fake purchases. And, you know, it was a poorly attended event, regardless of what you think about President Trump or that outcome. It just shows the motivational power of the social media platforms. In in Panama, again, to use an example from my own experience, President Martinelli, who had been indicted for um, for spying using the NSO spyware, had fled to the United States, was extradited from the United States and was standing trial in Panama for spying on both journalists and other folks, um, hired a local rapper to do a series of catchy rap videos where they referred to him as El Loco, the crazy one. And the tagline was, yeah, sure, he stole, but he got a lot of stuff done. And that sort of like almost humanized him. You know, the 17-year-old, you know, YouTube uh, star in Guayaquil, who's got 450,000 followers, who normally talks about fashion tips or sneakers or homework, um, on the day that she begins to talk about the local mayor's race, she's got five times as much circulation as the largest circulation newspaper. So you do have a tremendous gray area where social media influencers aren't journalists. They're not pretending to be journalists, but they are occupying space that traditionally has been held by ed boards, op-ed pieces, talking heads on television, radio announcers, and they've sort of, through the technology, nudged their way in there. And certainly with the 18 to 39 crowd, they're enormously popular. I think one of the things that might be done or we we could consider, but I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, is to try to expose some of these people to journalistic values. What is ethical journalism? You know, when you practice ethical journalism, there, there, there's actual codes that people abide by, and they don't always do it, but they should abide by them. And perhaps some forum where you could introduce that kind of 
um, methodology or really ethical mindset to some of the more popular influencers could be helpful in explaining to them. And again, you do have a generational divide here. Many of them, not all, but many of them tend to be young, some of them even adolescent, to say, look, you've got tremendous power. You've built up your followership. You may be making a lot of money off of it from commercial sponsorship, you know, Nike sneakers or uh, Adidas, you know, sweatpants or whatever, Juicy Couture. But you also have a responsibility as a citizen to use what you've built in a responsible manner. And going back to your example uh, of the pipeline, that's exactly what they weren't doing, right? They were they were out there reporting on the one hand as though they were just social activists. And on the other hand, what were they doing in the background? Well, you know, they were participating in the destruction of property. Um, so it's a real, real gray area. It's one I think we're going to, you know, the classic watch this space. I think we're going to be watching the space for a while as people try to figure out what to do with it. Benjamin, as we were discussing uh, this topic and, and how we might approach it. You made a point. You essentially came up with the equation, more corruption equals more need for reporting equals more threats to reporters. Could you talk about that? I certainly can, maybe not mathematically, but uh, otherwise. Um, no, I mean, look, I think, you know, what John and Chris have raised, you know, to me is generally encouraging, right? I mean, the extraordinary reach in Latin America of media, whether mainstream media, social media influencers, it's just a region. We talk a lot about the democratic backsliding and the closing of civil space, but it's not Iran. It's not China. Generally speaking, the Internet is free. Um, and information has been shown to really mobilize Latin Americans in really positive ways, often, as you point out, John, to fight corruption. Um, and whether it's the Panama Papers, you know, revelations or, you know, other times where media and individuals have been the watchdogs in societies where you don't have inspectors general or attorneys general and prosecutors who you can rely on to dig up this kind of criminality. It has to be individuals and in civil society that finds this information, spreads this information. So, yeah, I think reining it in, making sure there's no fake news, et cetera, is important. But ultimately, this is like really good raw material. For, for doing a lot of good in the democracies in Latin America. Danny, you have a thought on this. Actually, I do. And I think that uh, the same, I think the same dynamic of big money that occurs in traditional media, it's been going on in uh, non-traditional media as well. So one example of the, from the traditional media is the reporting of corruption in Brazil, the Odebrecht case. There's empirical evidence from my work that the reporting was highly biased towards one party, which was in the case of the PT and against, and very favorable to another party compared to the average uh, participants in the, in the corruption scandal. This is one thing. The second is right now in Brazil, we have investigations by the federal police and the attorney general's office on uh, the fact that the Bolsonaro government has been funding. There's evidence of $1 million being funded and channeled to YouTube channels. Uh, and to influencers. So it's not just the influencers uh, may impose a risk themselves, but there's money flowing to these influencers to 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 have an effect on the people. And uh, the most prominent of them, of those YouTubers, actually, Alan Santos is believed to be hiding right here, right now in the U.S. Thanks. You know, it, it's shocking to me that we are almost out of time and there's so much more to talk about. But Ambassador Feely, I want to, as our special guest, I want to give you the last word. And if you would talk to us, one of the one of our favorite things to do is when we get deep into the weeds of identifying problems, maybe try to find that optimistic thread when we look at trend lines. Are there any you can identify 
that are promising? Are there initiatives by any particular governments in the region for enhancing press protections that show signs of being uh, replicable in other countries? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, In general, I have to be honest, I think it's a pretty worrisome panorama. But if you take a look at the recent uh, invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which is very far away from Latin America, I think it may have globally a bit of a salutary effect because we're starting to see just how much a government can control information. I don't know if people have seen it, but I I highly commend it to you. A video by uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger that was put out and circulated on Twitter today where he talks to the Russian soldiers and he talks to the Russian people saying, I know you're not getting this information because your government is controlling what you consume. Um, as Ben said in, in our hemisphere, uh, in general, uh, the governments don't control what's out there, but they do get in and they compete and they put their own propaganda out. Um, I think probably the most optimistic thing I can say is that people generally after a while do sense that they're being played and that propaganda is just that propaganda. I hope that we will be able to accelerate the timeline by which that happens in many countries. But um, I think the best antidote always is, you know, it's an old line, but the best uh, disinfectant is sunlight. I think the more that we can promote genuine public interest media, the more that people can see what real reporting looks like, the more people see things like the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, the more people are uh, that, that that people who are corrupt or who are uh, engaging in criminality are held accountable because of the revelations of newspapers or media or or even perhaps social influencers or people just doing investigations and then putting it up on you know open platforms. The more that people see that, I think the more they're going to desire that because ultimately that's what makes for a healthy democracy is transparency in government. And when the citizenry has confidence that governments are doing what they should be doing with their tax dollar and with the with the authority of their collective vote, um, people are going to feel better about the society in which they live. I'm going to take that positive vision and run with it. Uh, that'll be the final word. Thank you very much. You know, maybe given enough time, truth finds a way. Cindy, Daniela, Benjamin, Chris, and Andrew, thank you very much. And thanks to our special guest, Ambassador John Feely. We loved having you. Hope you can do it again sometime. Uh, Thanks to all of you for this terrific discussion. And to our listeners, this episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fascinella, and Zoe Reed, with the assistance of Christina Sada-Segovia, Anita Kirschenbaum, and Emily Hardy. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion and that you'll choose to join us again soon. For our next episode, until then, for America's 360 and the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for your time and interest. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.